Saving the world one packet at a time. This is Paul.com Security Weekly Special Edition interview with Richard Baitlick for January 19th, 2006. So we're here with Richard Baitlick uh, from the Dow Security blog. Larry is here as well via Skype. Yes, I am. Say hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boy, he picks up on my, my uh, fun parts already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, so, I'd like to thank you immediately, Paul, for saying two things. One, for saying my last name uh, correctly, and also for saying the Dow Security blog correctly. Because <laughs> I use the, uh, not that I'm really into Chinese language or anything to any great degree, but I use the, the way the Chinese tend to say it, making the, the T sound like a D. Uh, I, really, all I did was pick that up off of the Kung Fu series from the 1970s, but, uh, you know, I appreciate that. And the, you know that's funny because I'm very much into martial arts myself. So I every time I see that, I'm always like, "Oh, the, the T is pronounced like a D, so I pronounce it right." Um, and I too actually had influence from the Kung Fu series from the 1970s and the follow-on series from that uh, Kung Fu: The Legend Continues. So, sure, uh, sure, yes, and I and I happen to be a, uh, a a a Chinese aficionado, as it were, and I enjoy their culture and all that good stuff. So I happen to be familiar with it. Oh, that's cool. My wife and I went to China for our honeymoon. Believe oh, it or not. oh, that must have been a blast. <laughs> yeah, that's we cool. did uh, three weeks. It was, it was pretty cool. And, and that, we did that when both of us were Air Force intel officers. So you can imagine <laughs> the attention we, we uh, got from the Chinese government. When we were over there. Uh, I but can imagine. Out of mine. <laughs> so lots, R- Richard, lots of guided um, tours. <laughs> so you maintain the blog and you're an independent consultant right now. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I have. Uh, I started in uh, June my own company, Dow Security, and we provide uh, three main services. Well, we provide services in the form of consulting. We uh, teach classes on all sorts of different security topics, and uh, we've got some product ideas. So you might be seeing something out of that uh, this year or maybe early next year. Most excellent. So I, I guess I'd like to get started with how you got started in security uh, early on in your career. Sure. Um, when I was a kid, I did the standard stuff that you saw in, in movies like War Games. Uh, in fact, I saw War Games and I immediately turned to my Commodore 64 and uh, war dialed my whole hometown and Excellent. got a collection of all my these. My parents wouldn't let me get a modem after we saw War, war Games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I, I got all these numbers and I started calling them. And of course, I had no idea what I was connecting to at any point Uh but I didn't do anything because basically I looked at these prompts and realized that my my uh, load commands or whatever they were on the Commodore 64 weren't working on these boxes, which I assume were probably Unix, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was about the extent of what I did as a kid. And I did a little programming in, in BASIC or whatever was was available in my time at Sinclair or, or, or such. Um, but then in high school and, and college, I, I got away from computers. In fact... Um, there was a period where I didn't even have a computer. Uh, after college, I, I didn't even have one for a couple of years, and that was when I was, well, for about a year. Um, and that was when I was in Intel school. And, uh, but so then did you go into the military right, right after high school or college? or? Yeah, I went, uh, I went to the Air Force Academy, which is a, a four-year college where they, right. they turn out officers um, about 1,000 a year, at, le- at least back then. And... Uh, I went to the Air Force Academy with the idea of being an astronaut, which most kid who saw most kids who saw Star Wars 
theater of psychiatry. That, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he wanted to be astronauts. But of course, once I got to the academy, I realized that the life of an astronaut basically means if you're lucky, once when you're about 45, you go up in the shuttle, and then you spend the rest of your life looking back on how great that was. Um, so I said, well, maybe, maybe there's something else cool that I could do. And, and at that time, I, I, there were a couple officers who I met who were intelligence officers. And they talked about what it was like to try to counter the Soviet threat. Because remember, this was all back in 1990, before the Soviet Union collapsed. And I thought, oh, intel, that sounds really cool. And so I, I learned, okay, well, what does it take to be an intel officer? And they said, well, you should probably become an area expert, mostly by studying history, those type things, foreign languages. So that's what I did. And uh, after I graduated from Air Force Academy, I went to uh, graduate school for two years, national security type stuff. Um, and stuff you can't that, talk about to, on the podcast? <laughs> no, no. It's, I, went to, I went to Harvard for two years, did a national security program out there. Uh, nothing big. Um, mm -hmm. It was kind of fun being a lieutenant in a room full of all these people of different political persuasions, which <laughs> made for some interesting arguments. <laughs> um, and after that, I, I went like hardcore into military intel, went, went to intel school, uh, met my wife there actually, and um, after intel school I went to uh, Kelly Air Force Base, which, which is now Lackland Air Force Base, and that is the home of the Air Force Information Warfare Center. And when I got into the, the, the building, it was, it was Air Intelligence Agency, and the majority of the work I was doing was, was called Information Operations Warfare Planning which sounds kind of cool, but in reality it was pretty boring because <laughs> I preferred more of the hands-on type stuff. And so I looked around the building and I found within, within the same building was the Air Force Computer Emergency Response Team, the AFCERT. And I would go in there for tours with other people and I just thought it, it looked very interesting. So eventually I convinced my boss to let me go work in that place, uh, which is pretty amazing to let your boss uh, you know, to, to have a nice boss who's going to let you go work someplace else, just amazing in the military. Yeah. And uh, I sat down one day. I, I literally, I walked. It's sort of like that that episode of um, Seinfeld where I think it's Kramer just decides to start working someplace. He, he doesn't even he doesn't get a job. He just sits down and starts just working. Just starts working. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's exactly what I did. I sat down, started working, turned to the person next to me and said, "What are you looking at?" And they said, "Oh, we're we're looking at a, a port scan from Russia." Was that your I first said, well, exposure you know? to like intrusion detection? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and what's funny is that six months after I sat down, I was in charge of that little group that did the intrusion detection part. Oh, that's awesome. At least the real time part, because they needed they needed officers, and we were, we were just hemorrhaging officers out of the, out of the unit. So that's how I got my start. And that was back in uh, 1998. Is that your first exposure to Snort and the, those different technologies? Um, Snort wasn't written then. Um, well, actually, Snort, it's kind of funny. Snort, I believe there was a release in late 98, but it really didn't catch on or so until 99. And uh, at the time, the military and the military is still using their own intrusion detection systems in concert with commercial systems. So we were using something called ASIM, uh, mm -hmm. a security incident me uh, measurement, which was a derivative of code that Todd Heberlein wrote um, called the Network Security Monitor, which is the first network-based intrusion detection system. Mm-hmm. So tell us how you got involved with the Squeal project. And, well, and I guess start with what Squeal is. Sure. Squeal is a, an open source interface to network security monitoring data. Um, it's, the main developer is a guy named Bam Vischer. And I met Bam when he was a contractor at the AFCERT in 1998. And we 
we used this ASIM tool in the app cert and became used to having certain types of information at our fingertips. Not only alerts like you would get from traditional intrusion detection systems, but also session data, which is a summary of the conversations between two hosts or um, additional data as well. Uh, full content data, which is a transcript of what's occurring. So if someone telnets into a system, you see all the commands they typed. If someone uses FTP, you get the, the uh, control channel, which shows the commands, but also the data channel, which is the tools that might be transferred. And then finally, some statistical data. And Bam and I both left the AFSER around the same time. I, I think he left in 2000. I left in 2001. And he was working at SBC. I was looking for a job outside the Air Force. And we both decided to go work at a, at a company called Ball Aerospace. And at Ball Aerospace, we, we looked around at the tools that were available to do intrusion detection, at least in the open source world. And we liked Snort, but we, we felt that the interfaces to the data at that time were weren't sufficient for our uses. That's a pretty so common pretty common feeling amongst intrusion detection analysts, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. if you haven't used Squeal, I think you're frustrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know I have so, been in the past. <laughs> it, well, we can talk about why that is. Um, so, so BAM started writing something called Sprague, which was the Snort Personal Real-Time Event GUI, and that was the predecessor to Squeal. Um, he did a rewrite completely from the ground up as an open source version in 2003, and that's what the current Squeal code base is. So what types of information does Squeal give you um, that would give you advantage over the other tools that are out there for analyzing Snort data? The, Squeal's, the idea behind Squeal is, I guess it's twofold. One is that we take what I call a dumb is smart approach, meaning we do have data that comes from Snort because Snort is just a wonderful tool and it tells you a lot about what's happening on the network. But we also collect data that you would not necessarily collect if you decided up front to look for certain um, characteristics. In other words, Snort makes decisions based on what it sees. It's, it's programmed according to a developer's um, sense of what the security world look like, looks like, what their intuition is, maybe what protocols look like, what's out of spec, things like that. That's, that's useful, but there are people who can evade pretty much any system that has ever been developed. Um, and important thing to keep in mind with that is you've got to somehow deal with those type of people. It's not, it's not sufficient to just deal with worms, to deal with viruses. You have to be able to deal with those people who are already running Snort. They know how to evade it. They know how to evade your Cisco IDS or whatever. And so what we do with Squeal is we collect co what I call content-neutral data, uh, specifically sessions and full content. We collect those without regard to having an alert at all. In other words, for example, if I connect to a system that you own and I don't do anything that generates a snort alert, if you simply relied on snort, you would never know I was there, potentially, right? I mean, if uh, this is assuming that if I, if I did make successful uh, contact with your system and maybe I exploited it and I blew away your logs and all that, you, know, you might never know I was there. But if you have a system like Squeal, and by the way, this isn't just exclusive to Squeal. There's many ways to do this. But yeah, I was just thinking we, uh, we use IP audit or the um, NetFlow data to accomplish a similar thing. And that's exactly right. So we do, we do that with Squeal. We have session data that we collect with a program called SanCP. And the idea is you need to collect this information so that people can make a decision. If you're simply generating alerts and you can't, if you look at an alert and you can't decide what to do with it, you're, it's just going to be a, a source of constant frustration. Um, so that's so, why. So Squeal collects not just from Snort, but from another process as well. Yes, there's. Uh, we have three main 
data collection mechanisms. We have Snort okay. providing alert data. We have uh, a tool called SANCP that a friend of ours named John Curry, who's another ex-Air Force guy, wrote, and that collects session data. And then at the moment, we're using a second instance of Snort to log full content, although you could just as easily replace that with TCP dump or Tethereal or something like that. Um, there really isn't any mechanism for just pure statistics at this point because many of the statistics you'd want to collect, you're better off just grabbing like SNMP data off of your routers or things like that. But mm -hmm. we may try to implement some of that as well. Oh, I, I never knew that. That's that's very interesting. I, I, you know, I believe the same thing that you have to look at more than just your IDS alert data to get the full picture of what's going on in your network. Right. Provide sure. significantly and, more context. Yeah. And that's just it. Now, you know, Marty, you, you mentioned an interesting word there, Larry, the context. That's something that Marty Rush has been providing with his, his RNA tool, right? The idea mm -hmm. of the context is not only what do you see coming across the wire, but who's on the other end, who's listening, what what type of host is it, and things like that. Um, that's one form of context. Another form of context is knowing what happens during an alert, but also prior to it and then after it. Um, and in many, in many cases, I do investigations simply with session data well, or session data backed up with full content when it's available. So I might not even use alerts because, you know, the best intruders that are out there don't don't take actions that would necessarily trip an alert. That's true. Right, so, and, and responses to actions may not trigger yet another alert. Sure, or just something simple like, you know, any, pretty much any web attack you can imagine can be done over an SSL encryption mechanism. So you're not going to get any alerts off of that. Um, you can get more creative where you do things like uh, policy-based alerting where you say, my web server should never initiate connections outbound. I suddenly saw my web, you know, I, I program an alert that says any outbound connection from my web server, give me an alert. You could find things that way, or you could do it using, you know, session-based uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. So are, are you aware of anything in the open source community that gives you that contextual-based information, other than us humans that sit there and look at packets all day, right? You know, that's an interesting question. There's there's a couple different approaches to that. One is to somehow incorporate network-based scanning data or network-based enumeration data, like right, like uh, from Nmap or Nessus. Well, Nmap or Nessus, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we do that with Squeal to some degree. You can, if you scan your host or your or the network you're trying to monitor, mm -hmm. you can load the net, uh, the, excuse me, the Nessus results into Squeal mm -hmm. into a database we maintain, and then you can click on an IP that you see that you own and get the Nessus results for it. To be, tr to be honest, I don't really use that too often. People, pe some people like it, but um, that's sort of like a next generation type thing that we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to. You know, I don't really know, aside from some of like the SIM type tools, like, uh, what is it, ossim.net, awesome.net, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that's a sort of a program that, that might try to incorporate more of that type stuff, but I haven't played with that. If it's not in the FreeBSD ports tree, I tend not to use it. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting concept, um, an interesting comment, because we, we see that you're a big FreeBSD person. So what um, what drew you to FreeBSD? I think every security professional has their favorite Linux slash Unix type OS that they like to use and they're most comfortable with. So I guess what, what drew you to FreeBSD? Uh, initially, I looked at FreeBSD because... Uh, I had gotten this weird CD at a, at a conference. It said FreeBSD 3.2 on it, and I said, what is this? <laughs> I, I, had no, I had no even concept of what it could possibly be. I, at the time, uh, this was, say, like in 1999, I, I, had, I had heard of Linux, and I was using probably Red Hat 6.0 type distributions back then. 
And then this FreeBSD thing came along, and I didn't even really know what it was. And I knew there was there was one guy in the assert by the name of uh, Chad Renfro who was who was always talking about FreeBSD, and you need to take a look at this. And but uh, to me, it seemed like just a little too fringe to uh, to take a look at. But what happened was we were looking at transitioning some of our our sensors to FreeBSD because the developers had heard that, and they had done some experimentation that the FreeBSD network stack was was offered better performance compared to Linux. And back then we were talking, you know, 2.2 kernel, mm -hmm. uh, that type of thing. And the other thing was there was the opportunity to have an integrated IPsec stack with FreeBSD. And that was something that was of interest um, with our sensors as well. So when I started building sensors for Ball Aerospace, we immediately used FreeBSD. I think we started with FreeBSD 4.2. And it, I've just never looked back since then. Um, yeah. I guess that's it. <laughs> I guess you're, you're probably looking for some reasons too, right? Besides that. Well, no. I mean, if you're if it's what you used in the beginning and you're comfortable with it, um, you know, I mean, that's a good enough reason. It's it's kind of like an an editor is to a programmer. If it's the tool that they use every day and they're comfortable with it, then it's what that they can they can do good things with it. So it seems that FreeBSD sure, is is that for you? You know. I, I actually have seven reasons, which this may sound funny, but somebody asked me this, so I, I posted it to my blog in uh, 2004. So the seven reasons I gave was, one is it's open source, mm -hmm. so that sort of said, well, you know, why BSD over, over Windows? But it has a business-friendly license. You know, the BSD license, you can do pretty much anything you want with it, mm -hmm. uh, as long as you give credit. Um, secondly, it's integrated and it's complete, meaning it's not a kernel. It's uh, it's a kernel plus a user land, and the whole thing is treated as a system. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you talk to the developers, you're dealing with everyone's dealing with the same thing because it is it is a complete right. system. There's not one set uh, of kernel developers like there are for Linux, and another set of GNU developers that provide all the utilities for the operating. Yeah, system. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the third reason I gave was that it's all the source code is available via CVS. This is in a little different from things like. Uh, some of the some of the package-based distributions. Obviously, the code is open, but it's really nice to be able to browse via, say, you know, using a web-based CVS front end to go and find that driver of interest, do a diff on that in the old version, and see what's changed. That that to me is really cool. Um, the third part is I found the developers to be very accessible. It's it's not unusual to have someone on the core team respond to a message posted to like FreeBSD questions, where it's just like you know, the lowest of the low, we're out there trying to ask questions and to have a core team developer respond, it's really, you know, very, very helpful. Um, the ports tree is probably one of the, the greatest things that I think. That the ports tree currently has uh, over 14,000 tools in it. And what's nice about the ports tree is you can use it as a means to either install packages, so, you know, pre-compiled software, or you can build things from source. And essentially, if it's in the ports tree, it's almost guaranteed to work. Um, I've never come across anything that it's in the port street, but it wouldn't work. So I really like that. Um, I think FreeBSD has a really good security record, uh, and its feature set seems to be pretty robust. And then finally, I think FreeBSD, but really all the BSDs, really continue to innovate in terms of some of the directions they're going, um, which I think is remarkable considering the size of the developer base compared to something like um, Linux, you know, where there's so much more corporate support. And yeah, those are the seven reasons. <laughs> well, you've convinced I think really, me. I need to take a, yeah, I I need to take a second look. <laughs> and and I think, too, I think the BSD kernel is far more um, mature than the Linux kernel. That's a good point. It's interesting. People talk about what is Unix. I remember when I first kind of became really Unix aware in, I think, 1997, I remember going to an instructor, a Navy guy, who was teaching. 
and he, I said, um, this was at uh, uh, Joint Intelligence Center in, in the UK. They, they offered free Unix classes at night, at night, which I thought was really cool. And I remember asking, you know, what is Unix? What, where can I learn about Unix? And he pointed me to some book on System 5, uh, version 4 or whatever. BSD is interesting in the sense that it is directly derived from original Unix. You know, mm -hmm. Linux is a, uh, its heritage is, it was a complete, you know, from the scratch, you know, from scratch uh, project by, by um, Linus. And then obviously all the GNU tools were written. Did I, did I use you for a second? Yeah, you, you went away for a second there. It was a little blip in the Skype radar. Oh, okay. Oh, you're yeah, back. I was just saying that, you know, I've <laughs> directly back from the code. So that's kind of cool. Larry, did you have any did you have any questions for Richard? Um yeah, actually um yeah, we we talked uh, about a lot of stuff. Um you, you mentioned um from some of your consulting work, et cetera, that you're doing some teaching. Um and we read on your blog that you're looking to to revamp some of those courses. Um can you tell us about some of those new courses you're looking to revamp? Sure, definitely. Um the first course I had was this this course called Network Security Operations and the the tagline for the course is saving the world one packet at a time. <laughs> and if you come to the course, you can get a t-shirt that says that. Um, <laughs> the idea behind that course was it's essentially my network security monitoring book, uh, extrusion detection, and then the network forensics parts out of, out of real digital forensics um, put, put into course form along with labs. So um, that course has been really successful. It's mostly been taught to private. In fact, actually all of them have been private with the exception of some USENIX teaching. Um, but I've had some people come up to me and say, hey, um, is there anything else you could teach, especially with regard to TCPIP? And I thought, well, uh, you know, how could you do something interesting with TCPIP? This would be more towards sort of either beginners, intermediates, and security. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if you taught TCPIP um, using t uh, security tools as opposed to simply looking at traffic um, for the purposes of looking at traffic, let's let's use security tools and then look at the traffic they create and use that as a way to teach TCP/IP. So a course I'm developing on that is called uh, TCP/IP Weapon School, and that is it's a initially I was thinking of Fighter Weapon School, which is the Air Force's version of of Top Gun. Um, <laughs> so hopefully we'll be seeing that this year. I think I'm going to try to propose it for in terms of public classes. I'm probably going to propose it for USENIX or something like that. Um, so we'll see if that, you know, people like it. No, I think and that's a great idea because, you know, if you look at just uh, TCP IP networking, like, ooh, a SYN packet, you know, that can be really boring. And, you know, we've, we've all, we've all had our share of experiences where, you know, it's like, oh God, we got to get through the TCP IP stuff. But you put it in the context of something like Nmap and how Nmap can manipulate SYN packets and send SYN packets, it starts to become more interesting. Absolutely. I hope so. It, uh, an approach I used in my first book was looking at DNS for the purposes of, of normal, suspicious, malicious. And if I can do that with um, with this weapons class, I think people will like it. And then the other one uh, I've been looking at is, um, as a person who does monitoring, I'm always interested in finding ways to get around monitoring. And in the first book I wrote, I had two chapters on how to beat me in terms of getting around what I do. So I thought it would be neat to have a maybe a two-day course on that. Um, and I'm going to call that course Network Stealth. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a course that um, Tom Tachek wrote called, uh, I believe it's called Trial by Fire, and he offered it at Black Hat last year, but it doesn't look like he's going to offer it again. And the two of us 
talk pretty regularly, and um, he's commented on the Network Stealth class. So there may be some collaboration there, which would be great. And uh, there's also a guy named Peter Markowski who um, is hopefully going to be helping me with the Network Stealth class. We have plans to do so. So um, I would expect that if we do, we're probably going to try pitching that to Black Hat for Las Vegas, but I don't know if we're elite enough to, uh, to teach there, so <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> So, I particularly like the title for the TCPIP Weapons School. That sounds pretty darn cool to me. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It, honestly, many of the things I've either written or, or talked about, it's come about because I needed to teach other people this in order to, that's sort of my job is whatever company was teaching analysts. So that's sort of the way I approach most of these subjects is wh what do you need to do in order to find out what's happening on your network? Mm -hmm. um, and then I either create books or courses or things like that because it's a lot easier for me to point someone to do a book than to repeat the same speech over and over again. Absolutely. So and speaking of books, speaking of books, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, your book, Extrusion Detection. Um, yes. You want to give us a little uh, background on on what that's all about? Oh, you bet. Um, when the, when I wrote the first book, uh, the that dial of network security monitoring, it was it came out in July of two thousand four, and immediately when I wrote that book, I realized this book was you know eighteen chapters plus a bunch of appendices. I had another 10 chapters in me, and uh, so the way I like to think of it is the DAO is sort of the constitution and extrusion detection is the Bill of Rights, um, mm -hmm. because it's funny, extrusion has 10 chapters, so just like the Bill of Rights, but anyway, <laughs> um, I realized that there were some other topics I wanted to, I wanted to discuss, namely, watching what leaves your network can be more interesting than what is trying to get into your network, because if you think about it, stuff that comes into your network, or at least tries to get into your network, most likely it's going to fail. But if something is leaving your network, already there's something on the inside that you may have to worry about. And in, in a land where many people are using um, NAT and, and RFC 1918 address space on the insides of their networks, there may be no way for an external intruder to directly contact a, a client that is, that is you know, internal. So unless you do some, some type of client-side attack or somebody brings in an infected laptop or something like that. So... There's no doubt that there are systems on the insides of networks that are compromised. The question is how how best to find them. So, the the old model where you watch what comes into your network doesn't really work with that with that model. Yeah, um, I completely agree. You know, I, I I did some I do work for a university, and there's so much traffic coming into the network, and there's so many targets that you know I started tuning my snort sensors, and I'm like I I can't look at all the attempts. I need to look at if something has been compromised, what happens afterwards? And then I can accurately identify where the problems are on the network. And until right, I made right. that like mind, you know, that switch in my train of thought, I was, I was just flailing about, you know, going, I can't deal with all these false positives. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. We, I remember using that against code red in what was that? 2001, I guess. Yep. Um, we had, obviously we had alerts for it. And so these a slew of alerts are coming in. And we couldn't deal with the inbound volume, so we turned the alerts around and said, let's look and see which of our systems are trying to, this was, you know, funny enough, it was university we were monitoring as well, mm -hmm. what, which one of our systems are trying to infect other people, and that way we know that they've got a problem and we need to fix it. So um, that was a practical application of that. Yeah. That's a very so valuable lesson. About. Yeah, yeah, how, how best to deal with uh, large, you know, large volumes of events is maybe to look at a second order or a third order effect. Um, 
along the lines of the the analyst training too, another project that we're working on, and this to this at the moment is mostly a, a plea for help. It, it doesn't have any concrete um, uh, uh, implementation behind it, but it's something we're, we're thinking about. It's called OpenPacket.org, and the idea behind OpenPacket is to be a central repository for network traces. Um, obviously, it would have to be public. You couldn't post something that has sensitive internal data, or you know, if you're concerned about your IP addresses being known, then you wouldn't want to post that. But the idea, hopefully, will be OpenPacket will be a place where, if you want to learn what network traffic looks like, you can go there. If you want to see what perhaps a new piece of malware looks like or a new exploit looks like, you can go there. Uh, and hopefully, you're willing. Other people are willing to contribute traces to that. And I'd like to have a system where um, people who submit can receive, you know, moderation points, or their submissions will be modded up. So you'll have something that shows, you know, the the top 10 or top 20 most helpful trace submitters are listed, and there'll be comments and things like that. So at, at the moment, I'm looking at maybe trying to implement it on uh, Plone, which is a content management system that runs on top of Zoop, which runs on top of Python. Um, mm -hmm. So. I've had some people sort of tentatively talk about maybe trying to help me because I'm not a Plone developer or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, if there's anyone out there who's listening, send me an email to you know, Richard at taosecurity.com. Well, I'm definitely we'll going to send you an email, Richard, because I've uh, have you ever seen the website dig.com? No, I haven't. Digg.com. It's a social bookmarking site that does many of the things that you're talking about when, um, with, what was it, open, openpackets.org? Openpacket.org. Openpacket.org. Yes. Openpacket so Dig is, is, is a social bookmarking website. So someone posts a story, other people can comment on it, um, and people can dig that story and say, I really like that story. Stories can get promoted. They get categorized. And I always thought, what a great idea it would be to do that with network traces, exactly what you're, what you're talking about. So... Um, I'll definitely cool. shoot you an email offline and uh, we'll talk some more because I think that's a okay. fantastic idea. I've always thought that, you know, there's all these security analysts looking at all these different traces. And what if we could post that somewhere where we could all look at that and all learn and all say, hey, I'm seeing this too and correlate each other's events similar to the way Dig, um, you know, we correlate, hey, I like that story. Well, why couldn't analysts come out and say, hey, well, I, you know, I, I dig that um, network signature because I saw it too, you know? Yeah, that'd be great. It, it's interesting. The the very first, okay. You want to hear the story of what the SANS ISC originally was? Okay. <laughs> All right. You know the SANS ISC. Um, it's what Internet Storm Center. Originally, yep. it was, um, and you've probably heard GIAC, right? It stands for Global. Yeah, I, I actually uh, teach for SANS and I do work for for SANS quite a bit. So. Okay, so it was originally it was like information or. or, or Right now, it stands for like information assurance certification or something like that. Originally, the SANS GIAC was um, a site that was set up for Y2K to have people contribute traces that they were seeing of what could be suspicious traffic or binaries or something. And then they had different handlers who would look at that and post what it was. So I was the network handler um, during that, so, so for Y2K, late, late 1999. And... Uh, we were all promised that this was going to go away after Y2K and it would never come back. Um, so it was the Global Incident Analysis Center. That's what GX stood right, for. Right. Well, when SANS realized that they had a really good thing going, they decided, well, let's just keep this going. And eventually they turned it into some kind of a certification, which I don't quite understand how that happened. But uh, it was nice because back then we had a place where people were posting traces. Now, the traces weren't in binary form. They were just ASCII, you know, dumped to a screen and so people could read them. But 
there really hasn't been a place like that since. And, and these days, the you know the Internet Storm Center, while it's it's helpful, um, it's more about you know here the incident handlers talking about what they see, and it's less sort of people posting things, which I can kind of understand that that type of thing wouldn't scale with the, probably the lots of people who might want to post. But that's kind of what we're trying to get back to is is an idea where if you have something, you can upload it, we'll put it into a database, other people can query for it. You know, hey, they want to see, you know, what does malicious DHCP look like? Okay, you pull down a trace, you put it through Ethereal or wherever you want to use, uh, and there you go. Richard, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on this one. I, it sounds absolutely like a fantastic learning uh, opportunity, um, especially for me because I pick Paul's brain on that type of stuff because he sees uh, significantly different stuff than I do from day to day. So I'm going to keep an eye on this one. Yeah, I monitor like a 400 megabit um, internet link on a daily basis. So I see all kinds of fun stuff. See, if you could, I don't know the policy you have there, but um, I mean, even if you couldn't take what you see publicly and you know sanitize it to some degree, if you have a lab, right, and you play with something in the lab, why should like a thousand people have to redo, you know, have to duplicate running the same exploit? Um, when you one person could run it and then upload it and say what they did, it would just be uh, you know it would be a good way to focus people's uh, work into something more productive. Hopefully, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And Richard, as part of that project, um, I'm looking at the web page right now, and I really liked the uh, the first sort of comment. Um, will there be some anonymization that can happen with some of that stuff, or you're looking to keep it? completely public addresses and, and all that good stuff. Well, okay, I, yeah, that, that's a good point I should just make right there. If you go to openpacket.org right now, it's just going to redirect you to a blog posting that I made about it. So there's really no right. Open Packet website, but yeah, it's there. Um, I, really, I'm not quite sure how we're going to handle it. I would prefer to... Uh, I would prefer to allow traffic to be as original as possible but only to the point where that does not reveal something you would not want to see. So if you have some type of test network that has publicly routable IPs, but you don't care if those IPs are known, and you don't care what the content of that is because it's a public test land, or let's say it's a honey net or something like that, I think and if you're comfortable with it, if you, pu if you submit that traffic, I would love to just see the original IPs. Um, it gets really crazy looking at the same 192.168 or 10. whatever addresses all the time. So, uh, and, and really, if you're dealing with certain applications, you're going to have to be pretty thorough in terms of scrubbing out all those IPs. Um, now, obviously, if you're dealing with something that you really want to contribute, but the IPs are not ones that you would want to release, then yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to sanitize them. Um, what I envision happening is there'll be some sort of a, a small group of, of open packet moderators, and we would do a sanity check on the trace um, just to make sure you didn't do you didn't inadvertently provide something that you didn't think you were providing. Um, gotcha. But we're going to leave the responsibility on on the users. I like that idea of having a moderator for the website that kind of monitors all the the posts being um, being put up to openpacket.org. Yeah, it's just sort of a sanity check to make sure you didn't do something you didn't mean to do. Mm -hmm. um, we're hoping that we won't end up. Uh, if you here's the what we're envisioning is if you want to download anything, it should it should be just completely anonymous. Anyone who wants to get access can get access. If you're going to upload, though, we'd like people to. Um, we're probably going to uh, allow people to register or hope people that will will register, so that we will be absolved of any legal claims. Because if you say you upload traffic from your university. Um, 
I don't want to get sued by the university because somebody from your organization uploaded the traffic. Yeah, I mean, you I could understand. easily see somebody going. That would be a great attack upon Open Packet. Would be just to upload sensitive data and then have us get sued. So <laughs> try to avoid that. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. No. <laughs> um. Let's oh. see. Go ahead, Larry. Um. I I, th I think I've got one one. Uh. And this is sort of related to uh, some some recent events. Um. What do you think about the uh, the threat that's arisen from the the WMF vulnerability? Okay, this the, you're you're totally planting one on me here. Um, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Anyone who's read yes, my I blog use specific I, words for a reason. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, it, people who've read my blog regularly know that I get really fired up when I see the words threat or vulnerability, and I, I don't get fired up if they're if I if I see them used in a certain context, but outside of a certain context, then I I start to get all antsy. Um, the way I look at the world in terms of that is, is sort of the traditional uh, intel or counterterrorism or police or you know any type of you know non-digital security. It's it's very clear what a threat is and what a vulnerability is. Um, a threat is typically defined as as a party who has the capabilities and intentions to exploit a vulnerability in an asset. Um, and a vulnerability is a weakness in an asset that could lead to exploitation. So. For example, when I hear people say something like, a hole in SSH is a threat, that's completely backwards. A hole in SSH is a vulnerability. It's a person who writes code, and maybe the code itself, um, it is th that is the threat to um, th that we should be dealing with. Right. Even more so, the person running the exploit poses the threat, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they have a capability, given the fact that they have an exploit that could potentially hurt you, and they have an intention. Right. Mm -hmm. If you yep. step out of security and you were to say, um, are the British a threat to the security of the United States? You would say no. They have the capability to inflict harm, meaning say they, you know, they've got nuclear weapons, but they don't have the intention to do so. Right. Um, you That's might look analogy. and say, what, you know, is, now that we know what we know about Iraq, what, was Saddam Hussein a threat? Well, he definitely had an intention, but his capability may have been lacking. Mm -hmm. So when you think in those terms, I think the terms tend to be pretty clear. The, the times I get upset are, are times when I read, for example, SANS comes out with the top 20 internet vulnerabilities list. And sure enough, you go through the list and they talk about vulnerabilities, which is right. But then in else, elsewhere in the post, somebody uses, these are the top 20 threats. That's not right at all. You know, the top 20 threats would be you know, organized crime, foreign intel services, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe malicious worms. There's lots of things you can think about. Um, so, so recently you were too far. <laughs> recently you were at the the Shmukon conference. Why don't you uh, tell us about your experience at Shmukon? Sure. Yeah, Shmukon was wonderful. I I went there last year. I didn't speak, but I attended, and I attended this year and spoke with uh, David Bianco, who is uh, another uh, Squeal person, and we spoke about network security monitoring with Squeal, and I I just thought Shmukon was excellent. I have to give really. Um, Congratulations to Bruce Potter and the whole Schmoo Group for putting on a wonderful conference. I don't think you can get a better combination of high-quality talks at a low price. Uh, I signed up very early, and I think I paid seventy-five dollars wow. because I signed up back in September or October. Um, there is just no no parallel. Um, I was very impressed by Dr. Dan Gear's talk. Jennifer Granick was great. Dan Kaminsky really really brought it strong this year. Um, Lots of good, lots of good talks crammed into those those kind of an aggregate two days. It was spread over three days, but basically about th uh, two days worth of material. 
Um, I have to say, too, I, I didn't see Johnny Long's talk on Sunday, but uh, I did see him speak at, at uh, DoD Cybercrime earlier last week, and he gave the same talk, and he was hilarious with that one as well. <laughs> I heard his talk was very energetic. <laughs> right. Did you uh, attend Simple Nomad's talk or, or follow up on any of the recent wireless vulnerabilities that were released? I did not attend. Yeah, I, I did see his talk. I believe I was pulled into somebody else's for some reason. Uh, found is somewhat interesting um, in the fact that it's probably not what people expect, but I don't necessarily think that simply um, the fact that Windows boxes communicate on uh, a link local address is anything that that's you know, really that interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I think is a little more interesting, which, which is a vulnerability that was just released, I believe, yesterday, um, uh, definitely FreeBSD and probably the other BSDs although I can't confirm that, I, I don't know, I haven't looked. Um, there is a vulnerability whereby if you're simply, if you basically if you plug in your wireless NIC in, in a BSD box, you have the capability to be exploited. Um, there's a vulnerability in one of the, one of the ways that, um, I think it's beacon packets are, are um, interpreted such that you could um, overflow a buffer and take over somebody's BSD box. I saw so, that. That, uh, was very, that was very interesting. And I, I think you're right in that that's, you know, a uh, far greater, poses far greater threat than, than some of the vulnerabilities that were disclosed for Windows. Yeah, that, that is without, I mean, the, the Windows stuff, if you're running a Windows-based firewall, you're fine. I mean... Uh, yeah, the attack just puts you on the same network as the person. It doesn't necessarily give you access to their system. There's a second step there that you have to take to gain access to that person's system. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's funny though. I have such a ghetto old laptop. Um, <laughs> I'm running this this ThinkPad A20 A20P laptop from 2000, and uh, basically, if I don't plug it in, it doesn't have it. So it has no Bluetooth. It has no wireless. Yep. Um, so <laughs> that's one. That way sounds to like my laptop. Protect yourself. <laughs> well, was there anything else you wanted to uh, talk about or plug, Richard? Um, you know. I don't know. I, I just have to say I'm really honored to be invited to speak on your guys' podcast. And uh, oh, well, we're honored to have you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, hey, you know, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. I think you guys are doing a great job, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully, maybe at some point in the future, if there's some more interesting things happening, maybe with I don't know when Squeal gets to 1.0, or maybe if when Open Packet finally gets going, or something like that, you might want to bring me back. But uh, otherwise, I just appreciate talking to you guys. Well, you are welcome on the show anytime, Richard. And the, uh, the blog is daosecurity.blogspot.com. That's T-A-O, security. The book is Extrusion Detection. And they can get that book on Amazon? Sure, yeah. As a matter of fact, all three of my books um, have excerpts available at, uh, at daosecurity.com, uh, you know, at www.daosecurity.com. Okay. Uh, each, each book has at least one chapter in PDF form that you can download. And for Extrusion, I took what I thought was one of the cooler chapters. It talks about how to get access to traffic on the wire using a variety of methods, and that's available mm -hmm. as a PDF. Yep, I, I agree that uh, the book is very well written. Uh, I downloaded the sample chapters the other day and, and ran through them the other day, and awesome. Now I'm going to go out and buy the book. Me too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Richard. You bet, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks.